This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Listen, we're back in class with Carr, and we're having a, uh, I think, um, an after discussion about Juneteenth. We had a, a whole hour-long discussion about it, and I admitted that I, you know, I didn't grow up with it. And you were saying, repeat what you just said, Dr. Carr, because we got to get this on camera. Well, I'm, gla I'm, I'm glad to be here this morning. And for everybody who's watching, thank you all, really. Um, you know, Karen had, is, is, you know, she bursts these ideas, and I'm glad to be in the, in the car with her as we move and around. But this, this Juneteenth thing, neither one of us, none of us, I mean, I think we're being honest, could have uh, imagined that a holiday with an unbroken string, 154 years string since 1866, that is known in some black communities very well, particularly the Southwest, particularly Texas, that is known beyond Texas in places, you know, it's, it's fairly well known, and that most black people may have heard the name but not know a lot about, went in the space of a year, really three weeks, to every human being on the planet celebrating Juneteenth. <laughs> Everybody giving days off. I, hey, Karen, help me, because I saw this yesterday evening. Did Cuomo make Juneteenth a state holiday for employees in New York? I think, I think he- uh, Yeah, I, I, I saw the- Wait, wait, wait. And, and Senator Kamala Harris proposed legislation, as did um, Sheila Jackson Lee from Texas, to make right. it a federal holiday. Now, this may be unpopular, so let me just preface it. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think, and help me suss this out. I don't think this should be a federal holiday. And if it is only, and I think white people should have to work. Why not? <laughs> I, I don't think, because I think white, give, people. <laughs> white people should have to work. It's, it's because, because I think it's so specific. You know, it's not like oh. celebrating King. It's not like celebrating, you know, the presidents. It's not like paying homage to, you know, figures and then we take a holiday to commemorate them or, you know, Veterans Day or something where we, you know, we honor folks who put their lives on the line Memorial Day. This is about freedom. And to me, freedom is very personal. And because freedom happened at different times and different places, you know, the celebration of freedom, I kind of don't want them to have commercialization of it. Juneteenth sales, because you know that's coming, right? Oh, the no. White sale, you know, no, no, um, and, you know, parades, what do those look like? And and because well, they, they most- parades, but they were parades, right? right. That's what I'm saying. It, it is so personal to the people who celebrate it. And again, I didn't grow up celebrating it, so I almost feel like I'm uh, co-opting something that while, because I'm, you know, I'm from Jersey, my dad's from Jersey. Yes, we'll celebrate freedom of all people, but I think that's a, just like I think about Christmas and Mother's Day. That should be an everyday thing for us as Black people. And if we're not going to do something tangible, don't throw a holiday at. Don't throw a holiday at us. Don't give me a holiday. Give me, give me something tangible. Give me, give me, you know, something that I can build my community on. Throwing a holiday, I think, gives also folk a chance to just check the box and move on. Well, we gave you Juneteenth. Leave us alone. Right. No. Mm -mm. So. No, no, you you know, I'm, I'm thinking here, and another thing is folks, you know, as folks have, are settling into the rhythm of our regular Saturday conversations, and again, I'm just really touched by that photograph the brother shared where he and all the sisters, all his family, they're watching, and they're so, you know, 
And as you're talking, I'm doing what people who are watching do, are doing as well. I'm taking notes. I'm right. And we both taking notes. We're going back. So you can't see our hands moving. When you see us look down, right? Oh, you got a book for it. Right? Yeah, my, mom, my mom gave me this book. Um, so, you know, I, I, I believe in miracles. Book. No question about it. No question about it. Don't look up my notes. These are my goals, my meetings. Okay. Yeah. yeah you know, and, and again, I mean, and, and it, you know, in terms of rhythm, folks are settling in and making a Saturday event that you watch. And, you know, please understand that, and we were talking about this just before, you know, we started now, you know, we're teachers. And when you turn on television or you go on the internet and you see folks who are clearly smart, clearly love black folk, most of these people I'm talking about now come out of our communities, you know, they're doing important work, but if you're not a teacher, then you don't have an ear or a sense for the rhythms of learning. So a lot of what we talk about on Saturdays is spontaneous, uh, almost all of it, really. And as we're having conversation, we're tying in history to learn those lessons. And so like in this moment right now, when Donald Trump is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, we had said, well, you know, we should probably say something about that so people can have a chance to talk about it. And what I'm saying now is that how we've started this conversation, which wasn't planned, Start and has it emerged, Prof? When you connect Juneteenth and the way that you've done it, and make that observation, that actually brings Tulsa in, and every other moment, and it speaks to something that's much deeper, and that's the thing that's now going to trouble our spirits, including the spirits of a lot of people who are watching this, and that is, in fact, let me let me use this. Uh, I forget the book I read this in, but uh, but. There was a young person who was asked about the difference between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And she said, you know, Martin Luther King belongs to everybody. Malcolm X belongs to us. And I think when you, when you articulated that feeling about Juneteenth, a feeling I share in terms of this is ours, you know, because this is a spontaneous conversation we have on Saturdays. And for those of you who watched and thank you, I mean, I can't, Karen, 200,000 some people have already watched that video. I mean, that, a video before, you know, and now on the Chappelle piece, and now, you know, they all these people watch the Juneteenth piece, and now they come back on Saturday and say, they still talking about Juneteenth? Yeah, because it's all part of the same field of our people, and we're going to connect it to what's going on in Tulsa today and what had went on in Tulsa uh, 99 years ago this June. But it all flows together. So there are pieces in our natural conversation that we don't include. And by the way, thank you in the comments. People are putting book lists, people are putting resources, people are asking questions. I'm thinking, this really, it. Karen, you're creating a class for, I mean, now I'm thinking, oh, I gotta go back and do some homework. I gotta go back and, oh, I forgot about this. But, but, but what you just raised though, is very important. In fact, that's really the thing itself. What do I mean by that? Martin Luther King belongs to everybody. Malcolm X belongs to us. Now Malcolm X is beginning to belong to everybody. My friend, uh, colleague, elder, the late Manning Marable, his book won all the book prizes on Malcolm X. And then all the people who knew Malcolm, many of the people who uh, knew Manning Marable, like Amiri Baraka, for example, were like, yeah, now nah, this, is, this is not what Malcolm was. Brother, you brilliant, we love you. There's a lot of good work in here, but let's be very clear. The way you have framed Malcolm X makes him suitable for consumption by a society 
that he was setting natural fire to every day of his adult life. And you can read Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention, and come away with a completely different idea. And in fact, a lot of people would misrepresent Malcolm X and quote that book. You know, Jerry Ball, who you talked to, he, uh, Todd Burroughs, a bunch of other cats put together a book, and Paul Coates, Black Classic Press, published it called Malcolm X, A Lie of Reinvention. And they go chapter and verse through there, and they say, no, Malcolm X belongs to us. We want everybody to learn from him, but Malcolm X belongs to us. And so the Juneteenth conversation, here's a piece that we didn't talk about last week, but it, it really speaks to what you've raised. Over the last week, week and a half. You know, we both been having these Juneteenth conversations. And I got calls from all over the world. I spent four minutes yesterday on CNN with John King, just a quick thing on Juneteenth, because everybody want to know about it. To your point, now it's everywhere. And you're exactly right. Within the next year, by this time next year, every company going to have a Juneteenth sale. They're going to have all kinds, they're going to pay a whole bunch of Negro consultants to come in and tell them about and And, and all that's going to happen. But you know, one of the things that hasn't come out is this, and I credit uh, a lo some long distance runners around the country, and I'll, I'll just raise one as an example. Uh, the African-American Civil War Museum here in Washington, DC. A dear friend, good brother, Frank Smith out of Georgia, a Morehouse grad who was a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who is still the director of that museum. Frank, he was on the DC City Council for years. Uh, just, just, I mean, a beautiful brother. It is one of the museums in our national network of black museums with the Charles Wright in Detroit, the DeSable in Chicago, the, the first national African-American museum in Wilberforce, 1976, it was opened. All those museums, could we talk about the Smithsonian, which we should, of course, very important. Uh, Spencer Crew, the director there, my good friend, Kinshasa Conwell, brilliant artist and curator who was the deputy director. So all those museums, Frank Smith directs the one that is devoted to the Civil War and African-Americans in the Civil War. There was a brother who worked with Frank for years, who's now an ancestor, named Harry Jones. Harry Jones, one of the most well-studied master teachers on the black presence in the military in ever. And Harry's an ancestor now, but Harry Jones used to always talk about this. And if you look around in it, you can actually see his writings on this. He said, when Gordon Granger came into Galveston in 1865, you know, Texas was a rogue state. It was the last state to come back into the union. They were gonna to try to ride it out because Texas ain't never meant to be, they didn't wanna be in the union in the first place. When they ran out there, all them people, you know how we mislearned that history, remember the Alamo, Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie and Sam, uh, Stephen Austin and Sam Houston and all them. They didn't want, they didn't want a state, they wanted a country, the Republic of Texas. And so when they came into the, uh, the United States, it was almost reluctantly for most of them. And then the ones who were living, you know, Crockett and them are dead. But at any rate, Santa Ana took care of that. The Mexicans took care of that. But at any rate, Texas was the last one to come back into the union. But what Harry Jones used to always remind us, and Frank Smith reminds us to this day, uh, black soldiers, there were nine regiments of the United States colored troops who were in those troops that came, that, 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 that pushed with Granger into Texas. So when people talked about Juneteenth yesterday, and they're saying, oh, yeah, Juneteenth and, you know, General Granger. And I said to him, I said, you know, we talked about it. General Granger read the man. Yeah, he's reading the Emancipation Proclamation from that balcony in Galveston because them nine regiments of the United States colored troops, black people, chased the Confederates out of Galveston. A bunch of them ran across the Rio Grande and went into Mexico running from black men. These Some of these black men had fought in the Battle of Richmond 
in Virginia. They had come all across the East Coast. So I'm saying that to say, even on this Juneteenth, now that everybody wants to know about it, I heard almost no discussion of the Black troops and the United States colored troops. So when people think, well, General Granger told them they were free. Yeah, he read the proclamation in Galveston. And a lot of black people was standing there, and that's when they got the word. But you know, and I know, Karen, where they got the word. They got the word as brothers with rifles showed up. Can you imagine? And see, you got a lot of filmmaker friends. You have a lot of friends and contacts in Hollywood, black people making movies. Can you imagine a sister or a brother making a film of us standing in the field because we done heard rumors that something is coming, and we look up, and here come a bunch of black men on horses and one of, and uniforms, and one of them get off and say, y'all free. What? First of all, you look like me. What you doing on this? Wait, are you in this? We heard these Yankees. Are you a Yankee? I'm a black man. Yeah, but you are. Yeah, yeah I guess they come. Look, I'm telling y'all, the paper was signed two years ago. This is where, this is, it wasn't Granger on the balcony. It was in Brothers of the Troops. My point is that that's a special moment that we want the world to know about but to the point you raised a minute ago, that's our moment. And we and, and so when Juneteenth was celebrated, white people could come. It's white people in Texas who have always celebrated Juneteenth because they were born down there. They know the call, but it's our holiday. And so it's our ritual. We drink the red soda. We celebrate. We did the Juneteenth flag. We had a Juneteenth parade. We have Miss Juneteenth in the parade. We give the speeches. Like I said in, uh, in Juneteenth at Comanche Crossing, she says a white man was at the first Juneteenth, and that was the last white man to speak at a Juneteenth in 100 years. It's all, you can come. You can stand over there and watch. You can even stand next to me and watch. But this is our holiday. So when you say you don't want it to be a national holiday, I say, I don't see where what's going on now is going, but I know where we have been until now. And this is where we have been. The United States is a settler colony. There's a lot of different nations in it. And those groups in this country who have a sense of who they are collectively, doesn't depend on and didn't come from this experience, we can contrast the way people of African descent in this society have imagined ourselves with those groups. So we may take off a Jewish holiday in a school district. We may recognize Passover. We may recognize Yom Kippur. We may recognize the high holy days of the Jewish uh, culture, faith, tradition, however you want to characterize what Judaism is, because we know that you don't have to belong to a specific race to be a Jew. You can come into Judaism by adopting the rituals, the shrines, the totems the, uh, the, the, of the culture. But that culture was not born in America. That culture is shared by Americans, but it does not depend on the American experience for its origins. So it can be recognized, it can be celebrated, it can be taught. I mean, I learned how to spin the dreidel in elementary school. Why? Because it found its way into the, into the schools. And very importantly, there's a lot of scholarship on this now. Uh, there are still a lot of these women and men, particularly black women, particularly up there where you are, really in that New York, New Jersey areas where really you see it take root, who learned 
about Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, because they were side by side with Jewish school teachers. I mean, this is, goes back to Ocean Hill Brownsville in 1968 when they start talking about community control in Brooklyn and, and the teachers union, Albert Shanker and them are like, nah, because, and, and the black teachers and the black community was like, look, we ain't mad at y'all, but y'all not gonna teach our children just other culture anymore. Now we're gonna teach our culture. And so out of that, in the, in the late 60s through the 70s, black school teachers, a lot of them young, most of them women, began teaching Kwanzaa in the schools. Not to displace the other traditions, but to say, you know, we got some stuff too that don't come out of just, you know, what y'all think about black people. And so a lot of school children got introduced to Kwanzaa in the public schools because these young black school teachers were like, we need rituals that are ours, that we want you to know about, but that we celebrate. And so there's always gonna be a tension between the cultural holidays of specific groups in this country and then the, the national, I won't say the national holidays, the state holidays that then try to create a sense of shared identity. You can't share the feeling that our ancestors had when people who looked like them got off horses with guns on their back and said, yeah, we didn't kill so many crackers, we didn't lost count. And guess what? Abraham Lincoln signed a piece of paper, but I stuck it on the end of this gun and I blew my way from from Virginia to Texas to tell you, let's get out of here. You, you can't share that, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you can learn about it. You can feel a common human sympathy, but that feeling right there, that's a feeling that's ours. Right. So when, if you're gonna make it a federal holiday, then we have to rethink what this country is. Because if we don't rethink what this country is, we'll look up and those resentments Yes. Those angers are, you know, Juneteenth. Hold on, I got a Juneteenth email from fill in the blank car dealership. And they said they got a Juneteenth sale. Free yourself from interest rates. We have 12, and we, and when I said, and, and so in other words, you will take that ritual <laughs> and Wait. give us, we'll give ourselves more high blood pressure, more anxiety. You know <laughs> no, what? Can we go back to when we just knew about it? I feel you on that, Karen. Right. I just, I know, know people. I know people. And I know what this is turning. And it does, look how quickly this happened. And it feels like it's happening so quickly because people want to get from under the discomfort of where we are right now. So let's just give them this holiday so that they can move on. Yes. And go back to business as usual. I think so. I think you're right. So no, I think you're right. I was in a, I was in a long conversation yesterday with uh, some folks from the Zen Education uh, project, uh, teachers from all over the country, about 300 teachers or educators on the call, and we were talking about Juneteenth. And one of the issues that came up, in fact, uh, was exactly what you said, this kind of flash-dried, quick, rapid, get rid of all the symbols, concede everything. Here in D.C., they pulled down the statue of Albert Pike yesterday. Albert Pike was a Confederate Brigadier General. He was also a Scottish Rite Mason. Any of y'all folks who like me, Prince Hall, y'all know you probably got one of Albert Pike's books at your house, Morals and Dogma, all that, but he was a racist. He was part of that crew, that unreconstruction. And so what you saw is they done attached ropes. And it's very interesting to look at the composition of the crowds who are pulling statues down. I see a lot of white folks out there pulling statues down. I'm looking at black folks like, black folks looking like, yeah, is this, is this what we doing now? Because y'all know. But, but, but you're right, it's almost like, the, the officials 
the mayors, the city councils, the governors, they just standing back like, hey, get it all, sure. We ain't gonna bother y'all. And now the national, the holidays, the, the proposition of doing the national holiday, all this stuff is almost like a quick concession. And so the conversation we had yesterday was, okay, you're gonna give up holidays. You're gonna take down statues. And there's an African Canadian sister named Enid Lee who uh, helped edit a book called uh, Beyond Heroes and Holidays. This is a book that educators have used for years. I've used it for many years. It's been around maybe 20 years or so. Uh, there are a number of curriculum aids that we could talk about. I mean, um, in fact, I had a couple here because I was actually, because we, we were doing the thing yesterday, putting the movement back into civil rights teaching. This is a good one right here, resource guide for K-12 educators. Uh, John Lewis wrote the uh, foreword, but Deborah Minkhart, who works with actually one of the leaders of Teaching for Change. They, they do that. And then they did an excellent book, including some school teachers, Jesse uh, Agapian, who actually is out in Seattle. You know, you got this, this, uh, this free zone in Seattle. Uh, they, he and two others edited a book called Teaching for Black Lives. It's a very good book in terms of curriculum efforts, this kind of thing. But Deborah's uh, colleague, um, Enid Lee, her book kind of is one of the earlier ones in series like this. She said, we got to go beyond heroes and holidays because once they give you the hero and the mm. holiday and acknowledge that, that becomes a stand-in for, yeah, but I still don't have a good job. Yeah, but I still don't have no health care. Yeah, but I still don't have a good place, you know, to live. Yeah, you still got billionaires and I don't have anything. So I think what you're saying is absolutely right. These are concessions that they said they couldn't make a month ago, that they're giving up now like candy and now what we have, and I think this is a good place where we can I talk, just talk for a few minutes about Tulsa in the context of this. This is then when we take the moment, if we can, because you're right, you know people and you're absolutely right about this. It's gonna go a whole nother way like it has every other time unless we do this. We can take the moments, the rituals, the heroes, the holidays, the moments. And if we can use those moments as times to focus on the underlying issues that drove us, drove those people who we're celebrating to do what they did, then we can continue the momentum. And so today in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Donald Trump is threatening the lives of black women and men who have to work in an arena that hasn't been open for months to accommodate these hillbillies who are coming from all over the country. In fact, there's an article in Vanity Fair uh, by Jeff Charlotte, uh, who it just came out. People can look it up on Vanity Fair now. And the, the, the name of the article is, he is the chosen one to run America inside the cult of Trump. His rallies are church and he is the gospel. And you know, Charlotte, uh, Jeff Charlotte wrote that, wrote that book on, um, what's the name of that group, that secret group that the, the white dudes meet, it'll come to me in a minute. Uh, but at any rate, the family or something like that. Family, the family. Yeah, the family. Yeah, yeah Charlotte family. wrote the book on the family. So, you know, that, this is his thing. He goes around and looks at these secret kind of things. So he wrote this long article, just dropped in Vanity Fair like yesterday, day before, on the Trump rallies. So when you see these people who have been camping out for a week, by the way, out there. Camping you know, out. Camping, can you believe that? Camping out. Right? So when you see them, you're looking at people who are really, Charlotte would describe them as being really in a cult. They, they don't, they're, not, they're not really listening to Trump for policy, ideology. It's a mix of white supremacy, religious extremism, all this kind of thing. And they're in Tulsa now, today. And all them black and brown people who got to work in that arena 
are essential personnel now who are going to be their lives being threatened because one of the things you know ain't none of them gonna have on is no mask because they're trying to make a point i guess jesus or trump or their version of jesus whoever because we know again you know we got our version too jesus would never threaten the lives of anyone in fact he's here to save lives you know but at any rate today he's in tulsa and you know we said you know we should probably say something about this tulsa is a great example of what you opened up with a minute ago Tulsa is an example of a place where our memories are in conflict with the memories of other people. And what happened in Tulsa 99 years ago this June? What happened in Tulsa in 1921 was something that has been fought about for 99 years. And in Tulsa, this weekend, if the pandemic weren't here and was still a pandemic, there would have been what they normally have, which is a recognition of Tulsa race riot, considered the largest race riot in American history, white riot. And there were about maybe the, over the arc of this of our history in this country, there have been roughly speaking about 250 of these white riots where they come in and try to tear up white parts of uh, of, of the country. In fact, black there was black, city, parts. black parts. They tear up black, black parts. parts. Right, not me, yeah, not white parts. Black. I don't know what I was thinking about. But there there have been about 250 of them. In fact, just before what happened in Tulsa in 1921, there was one in Dewey, Oklahoma. In Dewey, Oklahoma, nearby. They tried to run the black people out of town. This is really what these riots were about, really, in Oklahoma and other places. They want to run black people out of town. Continue, Dr. Carr, because you know I'm reading Mercer's book, The Color of Money, and I'm also reading Andy yes. Darity's book. And, they, and they're talking about Tulsa, that, what, that massacre that happened, that domestic act of terror, government sanctioned on that community of very wealthy very affluent and also working class and the most power one of the most powerful communities of black people self-sufficient yes and we've talked a little bit about this with robert church robert church when that land grab happened in oklahoma for all the people the black people got the worst the, the there were already squatters there right? right that they got on the choice land That's right. there were already native americans there that owned black people right How about that and then when Robert Church funded a few like J.B. Stratford and O.W. Gurley and others got money, they what what they got were the scraps. So they got the worst land. No question. What no one knew was that there was oil. So <laughs> the worst land, what the last would become what first, right? So what was the worst land? So after they discovered oil and there was affluence, the jealousy was like, well, you had a chance to get that horrible land. You didn't want it. You left it for the Negroes. Right, and now right. there's oil. And then they <laughs> wanted it back, right? Yes. Then yes. They went, so they were looking for a reason. And it had been going on for a couple of years that they that that, that tension, that anger, that jealousy was brewing. And that Dick Rowland fake did something in an elevator was they, just they, the the match that just set it all off. But I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think people need to understand it didn't just happen overnight. You see what we do? We talking. You, this ain't no interruption. We having a conversation. Go ahead, because you're absolutely right. No, I'm just, you know, I, I, th I think we all, just in life, nothing happens in the vacuum. You don't get cancer overnight, right? <laughs> that tumor starts from something, you know, eating, genes, something, and then it grows over time until it's a problem. You can catch it early, 
That's right. Or you could let it fester. And I, I don't know what it is like because as a person, we've talked off mic about this. I've never felt inferior to anybody. And I think when I come in a room, I make people uncomfortable naturally because it just, if you're quote unquote white, you don't know what to do with this. Now that energy just, yeah. You don't know what to do with it. And I, and, I know, and I know it's real because it happens all the time, but I, I, I've grown into like, y'all just starting to deal with it, right? And I know that, <laughs> right. I know that there's some black people that are very uncomfortable with the way that I, I, I enter the world because even for them, it's sort of like, ooh, you're gonna get us in trouble, or ooh, what is this? Or how can you be so free when I'm not? And it's and that's what how can you be so fill in the blank, free, rich, you know, whatever, and I'm not. And instead of working on your freedom, mm. you're gonna hate on the freedom or you're gonna hate on the wealth or you're gonna hate. So I just, you know, I can't imagine being black working so hard that doctor, the one of the greatest surgeons who got shot and they let him bleed out. Let him bleed out. One of the greatest surgeons. I can't imagine what it must feel like to, to have the the power to, to build this community, the power to do this on your own steam and to have in, in, in the wake of jealousy. I'm gonna tell you, Dr. Carr, sometimes, you know, I like nice cars and because I wanna live among my people and I wanna live in certain neighborhoods, I don't feel comfortable all the time buying a car that I actually like because I don't want anyone to be jealous or to feel like, and you see something too much that you can't have at some point, it, it, it bubbles into something that's really toxic. So I guess they felt they were insulated, their railroad tracks. We're not really, we don't need them for anything, but they're always constantly looking at what you're doing. Constantly looking. How do you, how do you combat that? How do you combat the inadequacies of somebody else, the insecurities of somebody else bleeding into your situation when you just got your head down and you're doing your thing, but you have to also be concerned about that backlash because they have the guns and the power and the might to take you out. I don't, I don't know what that must feel like. Cause I'm sure those strong men that came over with those guns out of world war one, they're like, you're not going to list this brother. And they knew that they had the power to do that. They knew that they had the power to do that. And in, in the 60 minutes, they had a piece on that. And we had a, a an attorney on from the show on the show this past uh, Friday. Yes. Um, Demario Solomon Simmons, and he was Demario, saying, "Yeah, I heard, I heard, I heard part of that. You, you had him on. I think uh, Amy Goodman had him on uh, Democracy Now with he, uh, Sister Crutcher. That's a very powerful conversation." Oh my God! But but what he was saying, they never talk about the black men holding off the mob, holding off the mob, you know, sacrificing themselves to hold off the mob because they knew that they were going to come destroy, but they didn't go down without a fight. But I'm just thinking, like, what do you do? Because if we're going to build again, we're going to build again. And Let me just did. be very clear. We are going we are going to keep building. That's right. That's right. What do we do to protect ourselves? Because people who are not willing to work will always try to take what's yours. And this goes across race, goes across ethnicities. People who are not willing to work will always look to take, will always look to take what you've built. How do we build against that? I think the only way to do it structurally is to commit to community. In other words, to bring everybody along. There are always going to be folks like that. And you're right. Here's no, no regard to race, no regard to background. There are going to be people who are just, they have a troubling in their spirit. Some people, they, they say, maybe born with it. Other people who learn it. I mean, but a lot of this has to do with the system we live in. We're in a capitalist system that's really, um, it's asymmetrical. If you're born in a certain 
space. You know, something fun. It's funny. Uh, a couple of years ago, we were in class, and uh, my, my my friend Nick Cannon, who at that time was finishing his degree, so he finished now at Howard. Nick was in there, and we were talking, and and we got around to the topic of materialism, and of course. You know, one of the things, one of the things I love about Nick is, I think Nick is, is a natural teacher. Like when you watch Wild and Out, I told him the first time I met him about three, four years ago, I'm like, bro, I watch this Wild and Out, I see what you're doing. I know, you know, because in that space, it's all fun and games, it's all jokes, it's all coming together. But there's a sense of inclusion, like everybody is into the game. And, you know, it's a display of intelligence. Yes, yeah, all heavy with all that stuff y'all be talking about. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, though, what you're building is a sense of community. So that day we were in class, you know, Nick was like, you know, I hear people talking about they want to leave the hood. They want to get out of the hood. He said, why you want to leave your people is not because you don't love your people but it's because at the core of this, there seems to be these issues that we can't resolve. He said, we need more people to say, no, I either want to bring the hood with me or I don't want to leave the hood. I'm trying to build the hood. He said, that's one reason why people love Nipsey Hussle so much, even if you ain't know much about it, the idea. And you live in a neighborhood. Said, I don't want to leave. I, I, I like these nice cars. I want to park my car here and I want to know that it's cool. And a lot of times, I think what happens in this society and this is what Nick was bringing up really, but I think even now in this conversation we're having, and as it relates to Tulsa and what they call Black Wall Street. In fact, Booker T. Washington is giving credit with naming it Black Wall Street. Because again, Washington's thing is we have to improve ourselves. But I think the issue in that circumstance is during segregation, we had no choice but to live together. So the doctors, the lawyers, the folks who are there in Tulsa in the Greenwood district, don't have the option of quote unquote leaving the hood. So they make the hood the place, the theaters, the hotels, all the businesses, the school is there. Everything is there. And so if you don't have a dime, I mean, this kid, Dick Rowland, with, you know, he's disappeared in history. You know, shout out to Don Ross, who was the Oklahoma State rep who introduced and fought for what became the commission on the Tulsa, uh, the Tulsa riot. And I think it was 1997 he first introduced, and by 2000, they've got the thing rolling. And so, but in that process, they're going back to previous generations trying to piece together what happened. And the thing disappears as the folks who are around, aren't around to be interviewed, as the thing, you know, you got the black newspaper in Tulsa, you got the white newspaper in Tulsa, conflicting opinions. And this guy rolling, one thing, you know, there are stories that say, well, you know, he his parents had a little money, they were business owners. There are other people saying, nah, he was adopted. In fact, uh, the lady who is claimed to have been his relative was interviewed and she, in 1972, and they say, well, what happened to him? They said, well, we don't know. I think we moved to the Pacific Northwest. There's no even death date for rolling. And as far as the white girl Paige goes, Sarah Paige, the white girl in the elevator, did he trip? Did he stop on the third floor? Was it an uneven thing? Did he come in? At some point, uh, he must have touched her. And then a, an employee at one of the businesses in there is the one that says, oh, he raped her. And this thing, as you said, was just an excuse. But, but the point I'm raising is in terms of what, what you're talking about. There are class distinctions. You know, because at this point, every black in Tulsa is caught up, whether you got a penny or whether you're the richest black person in town, you are black. And when those brothers go down, because now they arrest the brother, they call for his arrest, they got him down there. Republicans run Tulsa at this point. 
you know, you got the sheriff involved, you got the police commissioner involved. We don't want the guy lynched, and we're gonna we're gonna try to sneak him out. Oh no, they out there. Okay, well don't try to sneak him out. Then the brothers go down there because the white boys then going down there with their guns because they the word is they're gonna lynch this guy. But but what you have is a clear racial distinction, and because there's a racial distinction involved, the class distinctions in the black community in 1921 aren't so sharp now that you got to worry about if you own a hotel, you can't have a car parked out front because somebody black in your community is going to either try to take it or damage it because they don't, they, they don't have a car. The racial solidarity is different. So operating in that field of segregation, we have a different kind of conversation, even so much so that um, uh, Roland, by accounts, went to Booker T. Washington High School. Booker T. Washington, segregated school in Tulsa, Eventually, after the riot, when they're rebuilding, and then you're getting close to Brown versus Board of Education, but you're not quite there yet, they build a brand new Booker T. Washington High School, becomes one of the best high schools in the country, but it's segregated, and they say, we're going to make separate equal, in part because there were people in the Black community who was like, yeah, integration, we're not really feeling integration in Tulsa. We know who y'all are, and I ain't trying to set off another riot. Just make sure our high school got everything your high school got. So they built this brand new Booker T. Washington High School, becomes a very important piece of Tulsa history. But all of this is operating behind the veil of segregation. Once that legal veil is lifted, and the Karen Hunters, the Greg Cars, the Nick Cannons, the fill in the blanks, move out of the community and begin to signal that our dream, and I'm using us because we didn't, but everybody who did know who we talking to, are the dream should be to leave. Well, then the people left are looking like, well, F you then. Oh, y'all want to leave? All right, so the ones of us who say, I'm not leaving, the resentments that are really projected out past us get visited on those of us. And we we, we use the, sometimes the, the, the language is, 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 is uh, let, the language fails us. We said we want to do better. Okay, better than what? Oh, you, you're talking about material comfort and things you desire. Okay, that's cool. But by do better, you don't mean you want to be different than this other person because you'd love nothing more than all of us to advance. Segregation put that closer to us. So even a Dick Rowland who was, some say he was shining shoes, was he in, you know, was he in there to deliver a message, whatever. If the kid was a juvenile delinquent, because they dropped out of Booker T. Washington High School, there's a doctor on the block that's like, "Son, I heard you dropped out. Let me, let me, let me talk to you for a minute." Even that conversation becomes harder in 2020, right. because the class thing has fractured now. And so, thinking about Tulsa, and I think let's, let's I mean, because you you already laid the foundation for what happened in 21 by going to the oil. Tulsa's not even on the map in the 1830s. In fact, the name Tulsa, Tulasi, Old Town, comes from the Lakapaka Indians. The first time, according to most historians, you see the name Tulsa in any official document is around 1879, 1880 in the post office. It's a new place, but you're right, they found oil. Oklahoma was known as the territory. You know, Ralph Ellison writes about this. Go, you know, what is the territory? Andrew Jackson, one of this fool's favorite presidents, because he was a racist, when he was in the army, and then as president, they tried to stop what he was doing, marches all these Aboriginal people, all these natives, all these American Indians across the belly of the Southeast to the territory, they call it the Trail of Tears. 
And so that's how a lot of these uh, Native American nations, a lot of these Native nations in Oklahoma end up out there. They're not from centuries of living there. They get a forced relocation. Some of them, Cherokee, for example, had enslaved Africans. And then that gets, even that gets complicated. Are they enslaving them because they want enslaved people? Are they enslaving them so that these people can be brought into their community as distinct from being enslaved by white people? Are they trying to protect them? And then the whole thing really gets complicated when you look at another group, the so-called Seminoles. And I say so-called because Seminole uh, is almost, uh, it's, it's a label that has as one of its roots, uh, Cimarrones, which is Spanish for runaways, which, which is really where we get the root of the word maroons. In other words, this is a political formation in Florida. The Seminoles are fighting Andrew Jackson and them, and they are natives and Africans who are intermarried. So you got the so-called black Seminoles. They get marched over there too. So they're in Oklahoma, and then oil is discovered. And because this is the territory, the throwaway land, the place where you was just trying to get rid of your problem, push them out there uh, west of the Mississippi. And because you have also opened that land up, Lincoln does this, I mean, the Homesteader Act and all this, you've opened this land up to these poor whites because you want to take the whole uh, country, the whole continent from the natives. You got all kind of people out there in Oklahoma. And then as you say, they discover oil. And when they discover oil, in fact, this is 1905. When they, now you're in the 20th century. And the thing, the rush to Oklahoma happened so fast. When you look at the history of a place like Oklahoma City, for example, they say Oklahoma City went from nothing out there to a city. They went out there so fast that they were building so fast. It was just like a flat plane, and all of a sudden they're buildings. What happened? Oil. Tulsa, very similarly. And if, night, and if, if Tulsa doesn't explode until 1905, really, until the discovery of oil, then as you said, you're black, you're out there, or you go out there as we talked about with church and them, but they're not gonna give you the best stuff. But still, even the margins of that kind of wealth allow you to get just the, as uh, you know, Eddie, H uh, what was it? Ernie Hudson said in uh, Sugar Hill, he would say, I just, need, I just need a little room to operate. <laughs> in other words, I don't even need the whole pie. Give me a piece of this crust and one of them apples. I'm gonna build a whole pie off of that. And within the space of 15 years, these Negroes got 35 blocks. <laughs> they got doctor's offices. They got several hotels. They have all of these businesses. And so, and Karen, you really can't make it up really. I mean, we talk about this every week. It's like divine. This thing that goes down in this uh, Drexel building between this brother Roland this young cat, he's a teenager, maybe Dick Rowland, and then this white woman, this thing goes down on a day when there are very few people in the building. Why? Because it happened the same holiday that George Floyd was killed. It was on Memorial Day, May 30th, 1921. <laughs> May 30th, I mean, it's like, it's like there's some kind of divine rhythm This this. Keep, wow. keep putting our nose in this until we say, okay, that's it. Right. We quit. You're not going to do this to us again. Right. May 30th, 1921, Memorial Day. It's a skeleton crew in the building. The white dude is like, oh, this guy may try to rape this white woman. Now it's in the newspaper. Next thing you know, they have ponied up. 
and they're all together. They, they want guns. You know, the police commission, I'm not giving y'all no guns. Then they start saying, we're going to get us some guns. So they get the National Guard to activate itself. <laughs> they don't even have a word from the governor. He's like, I can't, I can't do this. The mayor's like, I can't do this. No, we'll take care of this. And before it's over, by the next day, June 1st, they have shot up and destroyed those three dozen blocks. They have, they have wiped them out. Uh, over a dozen churches, five hotels they had. They had five hotels in that region. They um 31 restaurants, four drugstores, eight doctor's offices, two dozen grocery stores, a public library, and over a thousand homes up in smoke. But what is the real reason to what you raised a second ago? It's all the resentments. It's all the tensions. But this is at the core of it. We're going to put y'all out. We're going to put y'all out of this city. Over 6,000 of them they can find in the fairgrounds. They got them in another place where they play baseball. They hold them for over a week. Now these people are homeless. A lot of the money that the people in uh, Greenwood had, the Greenwood section of Tulsa, Black Wall Street, and its surrounding blocks, a lot of that money, you know, we don't trust the banks. The money was in the houses. The money, the, the stuff, they, their savings, so all their retirement stuff, all they're going to rebuild. And then... They're protecting the white Tulsans who have crossed that railroad track and going in there. Now you got white children smashing up. They got candy stores. The white children in there getting the little jujubes and gumballs and stuff. I mean, oh, this is a party. You got to destroy these places and we're going to take all everything we want. And of course, coming to our era when we was coming along, you know, it's our college days. You know, the Gap Band memorializes. Yes, you dropped a bomb on me. You dropped a bomb on me. Because the thing at the center, at the heart of Black Wall Street, is the intersection of Greenwood and Pine, G-A-P, the Gap, Oklahoma. <laughs> it in other words, people don't realize, you dropped a bomb on me, baby. <laughs> and, then, and then you hear the bomb, because they fly planes in. They got planes flying in here, dropping turpentine balls, dropping bombs. They literally bomb a, an American city. And before the National this, Guard. The National, the National Guard. Guard, right who, as I said, puts itself into action before they are commanded into action. And by the time the smoke clears, and this is where we come forward to today, the estimates are between 100 and 300 people dead, mostly black, but there is no good account. Even in the Tulsa Commission report, which was released, they couldn't agree on the account. One of the primary writers of the report, white historian, Oklahoma Historical Society said, I would sit at my desk 12 hours. He said, one day I sat there 12 hours, I wrote two paragraphs. And the next day I threw the paragraphs away. Why? Because the commission could not agree <laughs> on the story. The black people on the commission were like, nah, y'all not gonna sweep this under the rug. The white people on the commission, like, look, you know, our ancestors really may have done this or may not, but I didn't do it. And so they're trying to come up with a story. And if you go now to, uh, to, to you know, look for the Tulsa Race Riot Commission, you'll find the city of Tulsa has a wonderful website and the report is there. They got all the documents that are there, but you will find that they couldn't agree. When it was over, black people said they're going to rebuild. So what did they do in Tulsa, the officials? They said, we got this fire code thing we need to put in place. So y'all got to meet the fire code and meet these codes for building. So who comes to the rescue? John Hope Franklin's father, Buck. Buck Clay, Buck, Buck, Buck Franklin is a lawyer. Rentersville is where the Franklins are from, but they legends in Tulsa in part, Franklin helps file all the lawsuits. Franklin wants restitution. He and another black lawyer, 
they in there fighting, trying to get this code thing lifted. They're fighting the fire codes. Black people, meanwhile, are building. The Tulsa officials say, well, they're doing a pretty good job of rebuilding. No, what you call a rebuilding is, I got a tent with some, with some walls and a wooden floor in there. And you said we rebuilt. Come on, man. Come on. <laughs> so what happened in Tulsa after 21 gets visited on the children, the grandchildren, and the silences continue to this day. Because in the 70s, a sister went out and interviewed, 1970s, people who were survivors, and she compiles some of their testimony. By the year 2000, because of that work that I mentioned earlier, you got a commission. They tried to get some of this story told. And they, to their credit, fight for and make certain recommendations. One of the fights they had was over reparations. Should there be reparations? Well, in fact, let's go back to a book we mentioned. We talked about reparations the other day. Uh, Should America Pay, my man Ray Winbush. And Sandy Darity and them are talking about it. And like I said, Darity has done some important work. He's extending the conversation. He's extending, they're extending a conversation that began many years ago because the brother who, in fact, um, talking earlier, uh, the brother who just passed away, Conrad Worrell in, uh, in Chicago, one of the leaders of the reparations movement. He said, since the late night, well, the Tulsa Race Riot Commission under the leadership of Representative Don Ross has generated more interest in the movement. The reparations movement that we have today traces back to the reparation movement of the 80s and 90s, the founding of the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, which traces back to the 1970s and 60s, the work of people like Amari Obadelli, Queen Mother Moore, traces back to the 1930s and 1940s when you saw a similar movement for reparation tied to other organizations, traces back to the late 19th century, Callie House. Uh, this is the book on her, My Face is Black is True. Uh, we talked about this one. There she is, Callie House and the struggle for reparations. Mary Frances Berry wrote that book. The federal government locked her up. But Don Ross, who made them, an Oklahoma state representative, who made the state of Oklahoma create the reparations commission, the, the commission, the Oklahoma, the Tulsa Riot Commission, he calls for reparations. And in calling for reparations, one of the recommendations from the commission was, maybe we should pay the survivors some money and they never agree on it. So then some private people come in and say, we wanna pay, help pay them. So they start giving out like $200 checks. Uh, come on, man, it's an insult. And even the survivors are like, what good is this? Then they say they wanna have a memorial. Tanner, back to Juneteenth. Said memorial will be good. But some of the black people are like, yeah, well, what's the memorial gonna be about? You trying to get off? Because in the years since 21, yeah, we fought back. Yeah, we, we, we tried to rebuild, but it ain't never been what it was and now y'all looking to wash your hands and make this into a tourist attraction. Like the lawyer was telling you, I mean, now y'all wanna have a, oh, so now you want like credit for being, you know, we, we got racial reconciliation. And so reconciliation becomes part of the narrative that comes out of the commission as well. And so now the commission fighting over what this is gonna be, they include and involve and then put at the head of it, the elder to kind of keep everybody moving in the same direction. And who is the elder? The son of Buck Franklin, John Hope Franklin, the so, native son. <laughs> you know what I'm so next week we're gonna break down John Hope Franklin, and I, I think that. it's important that you know people and places we can't they go to they go hand in hand. You know, 
you know, church in Memphis and Oklahoma because it's people. And I, and, I, and I think it's important as people that we inspire people that this is not, we're not waiting for somebody to come in and rescue. It's usually everything that happens is driven by somebody. That's right. So I, I want to celebrate the somebodies to, in, in, in hopes to, to, to motivate somebodies to, to pick up their mat, to get involved, roll up their sleeves. Let's, let's do it. And on the reparations front, change.org has a, a petition. Petitions, they matter from this standpoint that it shows sheer numbers. And we need to be strategic about how we move. So get on that change.org petition slash Tulsa reparations. Please. You can put Tulsa reparations in the search, but go to change.org. Put your city. It doesn't cost you anything. We need millions of people because then you folks react. Politicians react when they see numbers. I know. I know firsthand. Yes. I have 577,000 signatures on a petition to remove a flag, but that's not nearly an amount that we're going to get on this on this reparations one. So do that. Subscribe to this channel too, by the way. Hit the like yes. button. Yes, um, but, yes, but yes. you know, there's work to be done, and and, and um, attorney um, Demario Solomon Simmons, they're also working to get reparations in Tulsa. So they have a whole campaign and movement. But let's get the petition because that's the least y'all could do. I mean, that's, 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 the, the, that's the absolute least. Okay, I should mention one other name. I want to mention it because, as you said, these unsung heroes, Don Ross, who most people don't know, who was that state representative, pushed for the commission that led us to the moment where we can actually now make the push for these reparations. Don Ross learned about the Tulsa race riot at Booker T. Washington High School. He learned it from Booker T. Washington High School from a dude named W.D. Williams, who was a black school teacher who taught his students at Booker T. Washington, the new Booker T. Washington School, about the Tulsa race riot. And I just wanted to raise that name because, both those names, because to your point, history is not made by the people we see writing the books, by the people we see talking about it. History is made by everybody. And many of those everybody's, we never hear those names, those women and men who did this work. So I just want you know, I just wanted to mention them in, in the spirit of what you said. And uh, if folks want to read more about it, Alfred uh, Brophy wrote a book called Reconstructing the Dreamland. Um, Scott Ellsworth, Scott Ellsworth was one of John Hope Franklin's students. And we talk about him, we talk about Franklin. He wrote a book called Death in the Promised Land, which was the first book link treatment of Tulsa. And in this book, uh, Randy Krehabil, uh Tulsa 1921, is a very good book. Because, well, let me see if I can get it. Come yeah, on, son. There it is. Let me move this light. Tulsa 1921. This book, Reporting a Massacre, what Creeble does is go through all of the uh, newspapers. And so this is probably the best book in terms, because it's the most recent book. This book came out in uh, 2019. Yeah, I thought so. 2019. It's 2019 book. And so the evidence is there. Trump is out there this weekend. This would normally be the weekend when they have the big return conference commemoration, which means next year. And in fact, Creeble ends his book with the centennial, because James Lankford, who was a deeply conservative uh, Republican out of Oklahoma, is on this centenary commission. And some of this reparations conversation could be taken to Washington. But as you say, Karen, the pressure now has to be put on because it ain't even really about 2020. It's about Tulsa 2021. That's the hundredth year. And of course, we would be remiss if we didn't at least mention our sister, Regina King, because a whole generation know about Tulsa because of Watchmen. Come on, sister, 
You know what I'm saying? And I wish we had time because the black policeman, like she's a cop, her ancestor was a cop. There was a black policeman in Tulsa who they try to pin the thing on. Oh, it's a whole story. I mean, so when you watch Watchmen, don't think those are all made up characters. They did a deep dive Bass into Reeves, Long oh, Ranger. Oh, Nat Bass Reeves was the main. Bass Reeves, in fact, oh my God. Bass, right. Well, anyway, that, I just say <laughs> no, this no, right we go, Because listen, what people don't know, you're you're also a comic book uh, official. Oh yeah, no question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we're going to come back and start. Because here's the thing, Dr. Carr, and, and let me just thank you again for, oh, thank you, for trusting me. No, trusting me, because as I sit every day on the radio, I, I, I realize not just how woefully unprepared we are for what's going on in the world on purpose, how woefully miseducated we are, but that the people that need to disseminate it, they don't, you know, they don't talk in a way and your your manner, the 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 raw, the real, the just plain spokenness, it, it makes it easy to learn. It makes well, it we're easy. Classroom teachers. We talk, we talk the way we talk to our students. That's true. That is true. Yeah. That is true. You know, but 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 there's so much to learn, and there's so many untold stories. Because if you if you allow a, a, a group of people to tell you what your history is, come on now, who your heroes are, to shape for you what it is that you should be, you should feel that what's important. We're gonna always be in this position. No, 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 no. This job, and this just came from just conversations randomly that we've had, and you bring up people that I've never heard of before. We need to hear about them. I'm reading this book, Black Fortunes Doc. Did you know about this person? Tell me more. And you know, this is what this is. We're going to learn the things we need to learn so that we can be inspired to do the things we need to do. And it's not in juxtaposition of or through the lens of anybody else. Nope. We have everything we need. It's right for us. World can, world can share in learning, but it's yeah. for us. It belongs yeah. to us. And we want everybody to know. But like you said, like Juneteenth, it belongs to us. <laughs> No, you got, I mean, listen, listen if the time that you put in, people want to, you know, attend your classes and things like that. Maybe in the future, we're going to work on putting, maybe this is the new school, you know, we'll figure this out, but we're figuring this out as a family. You know, there's no structure here. There's nobody coming in and telling us what to do. So we are fully formed, owned ourselves, free human beings, doing what we need to do for our people out of love. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, exactly right. So, love so you. let me thank Wonderful. you. Love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, folks, subscribe. Dr. Carr's got to do yes. the 50 million other things that they got him doing out here in this report. Right. He gives us an hour on Saturday. I'm just grateful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's it. And yeah, y'all subscribe and hit like because, you know, to keep this going, we got to build an institution. Karen, you're right. This is this is where we're going for the foreseeable future. It's not going to be brick and mortar schools. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you're absolutely right. This, this is where it is. And by the folks who are commenting, who are watching, who are sharing, seem like you know, hit on something. I think these seem like people want to do it this way for a while. Okay, I'm with you as long as I'm with you. Go ahead for it. Go ahead for it. Love you. Love you too. Love you. All right. We'll see you next week.